0: Hello and welcome to Setting the Stage, Episode Thirteen. Sarah and the Elder Scrolls. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Um, why don't you start off by telling us uh, a little bit about yourself and what you are like uh, outside of uh, D and D and role playing games?
1: Okay, well, uh, I mean, just just in general, and probably comes as no surprise given that I'm on this podcast, um, that I'm a huge nerd in pretty much all aspects of my life. Um. I am 43 years old and uh I have been basically playing video games and role playing games uh all of my life. Um gaming has basically been my uh my main uh fun outlet and uh I gravitate towards um I guess like heavy narrative uh, uh style games. Um I don't tend to like, you know, simulationist or or you know, crunchy games like that. Uh mm-hmm. Uh, I I like to joke that I'm getting out of a uh, bad, you know, a bad breakup with Dungeons and Dragons right now. (laughs) Um, I was playing Death edition for a while, actually before all the OGL stuff blew up. um, Uh And uh, uh, it just really was not scratching that particular itch for me. So I switched over to Savage Worlds and Mm -hmm. uh, really kind of haven't looked back since. But uh, I've got a long pedigree of uh, of other role playing games Um, Had a stint where uh, I stopped playing D&D altogether, and it was just nothing but uh, White Wolf properties.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And uh, in my spare time, uh, I really like to paint minis. Oh,
0: cool. Um,
1: I'm very into uh, having a board fully stocked with like painted minis and good terrain and stuff like that.
0: I love doing that as well.
1: I got a lot into that um, early days of D&D, but also Battletech was another one of my kind of formative games,
0: and so... That's hey, the, the, like, mech one,
1: right? Yeah, yeah. Originally by FASA, uh, Catalyst now has a license for it. But uh, same game as always, um, honestly. And, yeah, it's uh, just big stompy mechs in the year uh, 3050.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah, I think I, I got some of them miniatures interest from that because I like the look of them. and It was, like, uh, Battle Sisters, like the Flamethrower Girls?
1: Uh, No, that's Warhammer 40K.
0: Okay, I thought... Uh, all right, I misremembered it.
1: Oh, they also have big, stompy robots. it's It's easy to get them all kind of mixed yes. up.
0: yeah., yes. cool. uh, yeah, you had one of the the biggest um list of systems that you'd played in the past that uh, from anyone on the survey.
1: Oh, wow, okay, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I've been doing this for nearly thirty years now, so
0: yes, uh, I think literally longer than I have been walking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, cool. Well, uh, before we get further on, you also have a podcast. Um, so, what's that about?
1: Uh, yeah, so I'm co-host of the Storyteller Conclave podcast. Uh, we are uh, it's it's myself and another uh, uh, DM, my co-host Rob, um, who uh, we've both been gaming, you know, that long that for that uh, roughly thirty years, 25, 30 uh-huh. years, and yep. uh, we are both nearly, you know, all, forever DMs, basically. Yes. Uh, And so just we've stacked up all sorts of gaming experience, a gaming pedigree across a lot of different systems and whatnot. And uh, we would have these long talks where we would just be, you know, storyteller to storyteller just, you know, for three, four hours. And at one point, I just kind of jokingly said, like, God, you know, we, we we just talk about storytelling all the time. We should start a podcast and just let people listen in on our rants. And mm-hmm. he was yep. like, "Okay, well, let's start talking brass tacks," you know. <laughs> and uh, three years later, we uh, we just uh, we just put one uh, episode one ninety four in the can tonight. So uh, it's basically just all about um, how to be a better storyteller, how to run a better game. We try to keep it system agnostic, so mm-hmm. we don't really get into like the you know crunching the mechanics of D anD D or anything like that. It's just about right. like you know at building NPCs or building tension or you know stringing plots together and whatnot.
0: Okay. Yeah, I can see why you call that the storyteller conclave because that's that has a lot of similarities with how you would tell stories live instead of as like a participation media like D&D.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: All right. Neat. So you're probably you said you're doing weekly episodes, so it's probably going to be at the at least the 200th by the time this episode comes out.
1: Oh, yeah, probably. Yeah, we're we're right on uh, right on the verge.
0: Cool. That's that's really that's a big accomplishment. Congratulations. Well
1: thank you. Thank you. And I'm I'm hoping uh hoping we're gonna be I'm gonna be having the same conversation with you when you hit two hundred.
0: <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. It would be. Um well uh this will probably I'm sure I will put a link to the podcast, but you wanna shout it out now as well?
1: Uh yeah, sure. Uh you can find us at uh, storytellerconclave.com and uh just look for storyteller conclave wherever you get your pods. We're on uh Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the all the major network.
0: Okay, cool. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so just want to get that out of the way first, because usually people listen to that part earlier on, (laughs) later than later.
1: Yeah, right on, Uh, right on. Uh,
0: okay, so you, you have, for your world, um, well, uh, yeah, usually I ask people for like, what's it called, and what's the, the physical description like, but you're playing in Tamriel, so the, the Elder Scrolls world. That's correct, yeah. Yeah. Um, why don't you tell me about like, why you, you chose that world to play in?
1: Uh, so funny enough, I, uh, for the longest time, I actually did not like the Elder Scrolls games. Um, I had a friend who sat me down when Morrowind came out and said, uh, hey, you gotta play this game. And I I think I got 45 minutes into it and got killed by some random monster and was just like, screw this, I hate this. And, uh, didn't play Oblivion when it came out because I still had a sour taste in my mouth from Morrowind. And then when Skyrim came out, I was very much <laughs> the same way of like, no, nah, I'm not doing this. I I hate Elder Scrolls games, they're stupid. And a friend basically sat me down in front of his computer and was like, you will play this. You will like it. Lots has changed since Morrowind. I know you have a bad taste in your mouth for it. Just do it. And I just, I don't know, something had something changed. I fell in love with it. And um I've just adored the world building ever since. Uh, got pretty heavy into uh, Elder Scrolls Online, and uh, for me, the big attraction to it was that it felt recognizable from, like, your kind of, I, I guess, what generic D&D would be. Um, You know, your elves, yeah. your magic, your, you know, uh, things like that. But it had just enough of a twist on it that it didn't feel familiar. Um. I really loved the kind of the dichotomy between the Aedra and the Daedra.
0: Um Yeah, that's definitely like, different.
1: Yeah, they didn't feel like traditional gods, you know. There was no like, oh, these are the good ones, these are the bad ones. Like they all kind of have a thing, you know? Mm. Um the idea that orcs are just elves, that the dwarves were just elves. Um, a lot of those little bits of world building like really tickled my fancy in a way that I I don't know. I, I it it seems Like when I'm when I'm saying it out loud to you right now, it seems silly, but it's just enough of a twist that it really intrigued me and really compelled me. And I just really wanted to tell um, stories that went beyond what they could program into the video games with it.
0: You know, of course. Yes.
1: Um, Like you interact with NPCs and they've all got these, you know, hundreds of thousands of voiced lines for them. And that's great. But at the end of the day, you can still only do what the game is programmed to do.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's Like smart- in Oblivion, there's no way to save Martin, like he he dies. Yeah, there's exactly, exactly.
1: And, you know, I kept thinking to myself as I'm playing these games, what, what would happen if you had a DM instead, you know, if you had a storyteller at the helm instead of Bethesda programming these games? How deeper could you explore the lore? What directions could you take your character? What sort of stories could you tell that weren't just hey, go out and get me 10 root and mm, bring yeah. them back here and I'll give you 50 gold for it, you know? Right. Um, and that's... So I just I set my mind to it and I said I wanted to, wanted to play in Tamriel and uh, uh, it's just... It's been great ever since.
0: Yeah, cool. I think it's funny that the... You mentioned the monster killing you in Morrowind and not wanting to play after it. Mm-hmm. There's been so many people that have complained about cliff racers that kill people for... <laughs> Early on in the game.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think mine was something like, just like a rat or a squib or something like that. that um, oh, okay. But it was because the combat was so bad that it was like five minutes of just whiffing of trying to stab it with my dagger.
0: Right, yeah, <laughs> if you didn't skill correctly at character creation and then, then yep. didn't use magic or something. Yeah. And yeah, just abysmally
1: slow because I didn't have my athletics leveled up and yeah,
0: just horrible. Can't even run away. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, did you go back and play Morrowind and Oblivion?
1: Uh, I went back and tried to play Morrowind, and I, I think I had the same, like, 45-minute attention span with it, where
0: I it is a bit dated at this point.
1: I, I couldn't get past the game mechanics. Um, I did go back and play a bit of Oblivion. I'm only about halfway through it, um, but I, I tend to have, like, really bad ADHD with my gaming. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. and so it wasn't that I gave up, like, a, you know, conscious decision to, like, I need to stop playing this game like I did with Morrowind. I think it was just another game came along, and it was, you know jingling the keys of the baby
0: <laughs> yeah i think uh, plenty of people have that problem <laughs> yeah yeah
1: so many unfinished games in my steam library because of that
0: yeah i'm working my way through about five different ones at the same time at the moment mm. it's going mm-hmm. great <laughs> okay um so your most of your exposure comes from skyrim and uh eso then.
1: yes yes
0: yeah for me it was mostly i did a little bit of Morrowind, and then like you said there was a, a different Game that jingled its keys, and I never went back to Morrowind. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. But I've done Oblivion and Skyrim all the way through uh, twice, I think, for both of them. Oh wow, yeah. And I tried ESO, but just couldn't. I I just didn't like the MMO aspect of it.
1: Yeah, I I mean, MMOs are definitely an acquired taste. Um, I was in the beta for it, Mm -hmm, Uh, played it all the way through. uh, You know, for a couple couple expansions, but then I think like just the The necessity of keeping up with an MMO was what really made me fall behind in it, and that I just kind of haven't gotten back into it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I was also thinking that I've played the Crusader Kings mod for <laughs> Elder Scrolls.
1: Oh, I didn't even know there was one. Uh,
0: Yeah, there's one for two uh, that's quite good and is now finished because two is done having updates. And mm-hmm. I think there's one for three that uh, I, I'm not sure I would describe it as stable. Um, I haven't tried that one, and I, I'm not sure it's in good condition yet. But oh, that's the... okay. The
1: core games aren't stable either. I mean...
0: Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> you're,
1: just, it's there. You're, you're getting the real Bethesda experience out of it that way.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, I guess that's true, yeah. Um. So yeah, the, the there's one for Crusader Kings 3 as well, but mm-hmm. obviously it's not nearly as complete as the one for 2.
1: Right, right. Yeah.
0: Um. Okay, so we've talked a lot about Elder Scrolls. For those who have not played the game so I was thinking we should give a, a brief description of the world um for the the time point of your campaign which you said is between Daggerfall and Morrowind.
1: Right. Uh so uh, do you want do you want me to talk about just like what what the Elder Scrolls um world is like and just kind of in general or
0: Yeah, yeah like Tamriel, the Myrrh, the men and the the animal people, I'm not sure what their name is.
1: Sure, okay. Uh so um Tamriel is, uh, just, a, it's actually the name of the continent, um, the whole world is called Nern. and, um, you know, it's got your kind of typical creation myth, uh, sort of thing, um, you have kind of a, a, a force of order and a force of chaos that then kind of, um, starts spawning, like, lesser, but still godlike creatures, um, called the Atada. And at one point, one of the Atata named Lorcan decides that uh, he wants to create a material world, and so he invites a lot of the other Atata to kind of take part in the creation uh, of this world. And a bunch of them did, but it kind of started realizing that Lorcan had tricked them, and what he was doing is he was actually stitching those Atata into the world itself, and using their essence to create. This physical realm. Um, the ones that were actually made into the world were known as the Aedra. Uh, and we'll get to them in a second. There was a bunch, though, that decided that they didn't want to have anything to do with this and wanted to keep their independence, and so they fled. Um, and those are known as the Daedra. And what those are is those are um, elven words for our ancestors and not our ancestors. Um, the Adra essentially then kind of became, uh, what are the, and I'm going to put some giant air quotes, the good gods of <laughs> Nern, um, Right. And they are, uh, there's nine of them, well, eight technically. Uh, one of them ascends later on, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, there's eight of them, of the core, the, these core adra that are kind of, uh, they, they stand for family and love and loyalty and, you know, the uh, aspects of the wind and the air and the animals and whatnot. Uh, the Daedra have an interesting place where they're not really, they're more Lovecraftian in nature than they are, like, evil gods. Um, some of them are evil um, Ball, Marins Dagon. They stand for things like destruction and slavery and awful things like that. Um, but there are other Daedra that are like semi beneficial. The way I like to describe them is they're like wild animals. Some of them are vicious. Some of them are downright cute. Some of them might even be useful, but one way or another, you don't really want one in your living room.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Um, because they are, like I said, kind of Lovecraftian. They're a little, little alien. They've got their own agendas going on. And they are the ones that screw with Nern the
0: most. I think the only one I would describe as usually nice is maybe Azura.
1: Azura and Meridia typically get, get referred to as the good ones, yeah. yeah. Um, though Azura has a nasty, jealous streak. And Meridia is, uh, when you get down to it, kind of a fascist. So yeah. even even the quote-unquote good ones are... Uh, you know, we use with caution by everywhere. Um, the land itself, though, is uh varied in you know, it's got a lot of different you know, uh, biomes and stuff like that to it. Uh, the lands of Morrowind that we discussed earlier are host to Red Mountain, which is a giant volcano, so they're covered in ash and strange fungus and a lot of like very alien sort of creatures. Uh, Skyrim is a uh, sort of a northern tundra a uh, snowy sort of winter wonderland area. Um, but and then you, you go further south, like uh, Valenwood is like uh, a lot of jungle. Um, elsewhere where the Khajiit, the cat people come from, is a lot of like desert and jungle and such like that. You've got Black Marsh, which is surprising to no one, a giant marsh. Right. Um, and each of the, the different races, there's like nine sentient races Um, in uh, Tamriel. And they're all kind of scattered around. They have their own regions um but it's generally men and myrrh. The myrrh are your elves and there's a bunch of different types of those. The high elves which are your altmer, the bosmer which are the wood elves, the dunmer which are the dark elves. Um and if you're not an argonian which is a lizard person or a khajiit which is a cat person, you're either a man or a myrrh. Um and that's basically it. I mean, other than that it's very generic d d high fantasy, magic is everywhere, swords and sorcery, political intrigue.
0: Typical. Yep. Um, so another thing I was thinking about for the description of the world is that the, there's the Empire of mm-hmm. Tamriel. So the, the humans have a couple different varieties within them as well, which are basically just like the actual races that exist in our world. Mm-hmm. Um, and the... Uh, Italian ones, I suppose, are the the Roman Empire, but in this case it's the Tamriel Empire, ruled by um, the Septim family.
1: Uh, yes. Yes. In the uh, in the Third Era, it's, it's largely the Septim dynasty. Yes.
0: Yeah. And it uh, was like a descendant, the original Septim emperor ancestor was the one that ascended and became the the ninth divine. Adria. That's correct.
1: That's Tiber Septim, um, achieved what we call Chim, which is... Uh, a sort of a nirvana like enlightenment um and ascended to being a daedra or an, an adra himself
0: right um and then his empire survives after that and it exists uh up until the end of the oblivion game yep uh, but your game your campaign is set before that so it would still be during the reign of the final emperor um ariel
1: the seventh
0: yeah i was forgetting the number there
1: thank you yep uh yeah i i wanted to find a nice little sweet spot in the lore where nothing major was shaking up the world mm-hmm. uh so that i could have essentially a blank slate of history to work with for my own game um and so i poured over the timeline of the games and whatnot uh One of the canon endings of Daggerfall, which is the second Elder Scrolls game, is uh, what they call the Miracle of Peace. Uh, They call that because uh, the game takes place in High Rock, and High Rock is a uh, collection of warring city-states, essentially. Um, They have a joke in in High Rock that uh, if you find a big enough hill, you can just declare yourself a king and right. uh so everybody's got their own little fiefdoms and such like that and uh one of the the canon endings is you essentially get everybody to kind of agree to a high king that rules all of high rock and you finally get them to stop fighting for damn once in a while
0: <laughs> all right
1: uh so i decided that the uh the, the miracle of peace was was what happened in my world high rock is at rest The events of Morrowind Elder Scrolls 3 have not kicked up into high enough gear yet to be on anybody's radar. And it's this nice little quiet spot for about 10 years before world-shaking events start happening again. Um, and it gave me a nice little area to, like I said, just kind of bed down and just say, all right, this is I can tell my own stories here without having to worry about um. The world itself imposing itself in a major way,
0: right, does that era have Potema in it? There's the wolf queen, like there was some war that happened, and I'm forgetting if that was before or Septim the seventh or
1: after you know i don't I don't
0: remember I'm looking on the wiki now and it says it's a third era. One thirty-seven, one thirty 130 for most of those events.
1: Okay, so that's way before when I'm playing my game. My game is set in uh, uh third era four fifteen.
0: Okay, all right, never mind. Yes,
1: yeah, so that's that's about that's good. That's a good hundred years before.
0: Yeah, it was a, a book series because there's all those books in the game. So it was one of the ones in Skyrim about um some evil queen that was a witch and summoned a bunch of undead
1: yeah there's a whole side quest for her um where you go into some tomb or something like that and she's there i think it's uh maybe even part of the sub subcrust
0: okay um, the, the, oh, i the forgot about altitude. that yeah all right i, rem- I remember i remembered reading the little the little history books about her but not the actual quest oh she was bonkers yeah okay uh so i was just curious if that character ended up there but it, yeah it seems like that's way too early never mind mm-hmm. um Okay. Yeah. So you get to you get to do your own thing. That's that's good. Yeah. Uh, what what do you have going on in your campaign then?
1: Uh. Okay. So, um, I started the group off as um members of the either fighters guild or mages guild, depending on what you know. I I originally started in fifth uh, fifth edition D anD D, so mm-hmm. it was basically based on you know whatever character class they chose. They'd either be a mage or a fighter. Yeah. Um, and uh, based out of uh, uh, Anvil, which is on the west coast of, uh, of Cyrodiil. And um, originally I just kind of had them doing like low level, uh, little milk run sort of quests. Um, but I had, I wanted to set the seeds for a lot of like larger plots early on. Um, and so the the main plot that I had going on early on in the game was a uh, a guy I called the Poppy King. And, uh, what had happened was he was a bandit up in the, uh, the Colivian Highlands, um, just north of Kvatch. And, uh, he was raiding supplies and whatnot, uh, to kind of provide for himself and for his, for his people. And eventually knocked over a supply caravan that was transporting a Daedric artifact called the Crown of Poppies. And it was something that I, I came up with this, not from okay. the game. Um But it's basically a, uh, it looks like a flower crown, but it's made of of, uh, brass. And, um, it's meant to look like it is made of of poppy flowers. Uh, it's a Daedric artifact of Shi'a Gorath, the Daedric Prince of Madness. Right. Um, now, on one hand, it gave him amazing powers of persuasion, up to and including mind control. However, the moment he placed it on his head, it inextricably drove him insane. Uh... It always takes whatever damage you've already got and makes it worse. Uh, This particular person, Caius Galerius, uh, wanted... He wanted basically to be like a bandit king. And so that's what it turned him into. It it exasperated megalomania in him. And so he started, like, annexing other bandit groups and using the mind control that the crown gave him to create a bandit kingdom. Um, and I did a lot of, uh, research on like how cults work and how, uh, like gangs operate and how they press gang people into service and whatnot and use a lot of those techniques to basically like cut off the other little villages that are up in the highlands and lie to them and basically tell them that the, the empire has forgotten about them but that's just because they were cutting off the supply lines, you know, but all the people knows that they're starving and they haven't seen an Imperial patrol in months. So, you know, uh, and basically he wanted to kind of start carving out old Colovia for himself, um, and become a a true King, uh, and, and rule it separate of the empire.
0: And uh, Colovia, I'm I'm recognize the name. Was that like a, a country that existed before the empire was conquered everything.
1: Yes. It's basically the Western half of Cyrodiil is, is Colovia. Okay. Thank you. And so, yeah, he kind of wanted to kind of want to resurrect the Colovian empire, you know, and, and, and be its king again, you know, just this, this little bandit with his crown. Um, But he started doing some really horrendous stuff. And he had also uh, conscripted a bunch of very unscrupulous other bandit gangs under his banner and they started doing other horrendous stuff, like whole villages were razed to the ground and just the body current started adding up. Um and so it got to the point where he uh infiltrated uh nearby Kavatch, which is one of the major cities. Um that's the one that gets destroyed in uh in Oblivion. Spoiler right. alert, by the way, for a very old game. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, it's still around and thriving at this time, but he, uh, one of the bandit gangs that he annexed was basically a, uh, kind of a black ops squad. Um, they do a lot of, like, very hit-and-run, very spycraft sort of stuff, and used them to start getting leverage over politicians in Kavach to keep them from, uh, mounting any sort of a resistance. He was bribing people, he was threatening family members and whatnot, um... So that they wouldn't stand against him. So our fighters and mages guild ended up going in and uh, having to kind of figure out what was going on up there for their own. And by the time they got there, things had gotten severely out of hand. Um, We start finding out that uh, the crown has a bad side effect when you use the mind control on someone who isn't strong enough to withstand it. It starts turning them into uh what in D&D we call a gibbering mouther. Um just <laughs> okay. devolving them into an insanity spirit, essentially.
0: I was wondering where more of the Shia Goreth stuff was gonna come in. Because oh, it sounds like yeah. you know, someone conquering the world doesn't really sound like a Shia Goreth kind of madness.
1: Uh no, no, no. It's it's mostly spreading insanity on top of there. And then um right, he had gone so mad and started running out of troops because I mean he's just trying to conscript what are essentially farmers, you know, uh into these gangs, he starts running out of troops, and so he starts summoning um uh golden saints and dark seducers out of uh, uh Shiagoroth's realm of uh uh the Shivering Isles.
0: Yep, and those and so, are like the strongest enemy in Oblivion, I think.
1: Uh there's there's some of them, yeah. They're pretty fierce. Um So yeah, so so some of the Daedra start showing up and uh, Yeah, like I said, things got pretty out of hand before they put that one to bed. Uh, let's see here, other things I've got going on. um, One of my characters is a dragonborn. Uh, Originally, he rolled up a sorcerer with a draconic ba- uh, lineage, and so I thought, well, this is just the perfect. Time oh, to dragonborn
0: be. from from from
1: <laughs> Skyrim. Yeah, I was he's... thinking like,
0: dragonborn. So is he Argonian? Like, no,
1: he... no. He's dragonborn as in heritage.
0: Okay, right, the the shouting thing from Skyrim, okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, so I thought this is a perfect opportunity to bring some of that lore in. Um, and so, of course, I had to put a dragon in. Uh,
0: okay. So
1: one of the places out in the Highland, uh, he was actually from the Highlands, uh, it was one of his villages that got burned down. Um, and uh, in that attack, he... Um, uh, he kind of limped off he was wounded and he kind of limped off to this nearby cave where he found some strange writings on the wall and uh it was in a, in a language he understood it was this draconic language that kind of awakened these powers in him um and so when they went back to uh to fight the poppy king um he kind of went back to that uh to that cave and found out there was a whole dragon tomb in there with a dragon that was hiding away that hadn't been killed in the dragon wars. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's a lingering plot thread. Uh, not only did they meet the dragon, but they killed his dragon priest. Uh, the dragon told him, why don't you take the mask with you? You might need it in the future. And the whole group kind of low key knows that this dragon intends for him to be, to be his new dragon priest. And they're not Really? really sure what to think about that. Uh, meanwhile, our Nord warrior in the group wants nothing more than to kill the dragon. It's become his all-consuming uh, personal plot line <laughs> uh, because he knows the lore of the dragon war, and he's sworn that will never happen again.
0: Okay, and I guess the Blades might get involved in that too if they find out. Yes, they might,
1: and that's uh, that's a plot line I am just getting around to introducing. All right, um, but I'm trying to play the dragons a real slow boil. That's that's going to be a late game. A late game battle for them to solve and then currently what i've got going on is that the mages guild has built a uh a portal to apocrypha in their basement
0: that's the hermaeus
1: mora correct realm. the infinite library of apocrypha where hermaeus mora the daedric prince of knowledge and fate
0: um, and he's resides. definitely more one of a uh, one of the Cthulian ones with his physical presentation. Yeah,
1: he's nothing but eyes and tentacles. Um, and uh, but a lot of mages will try to delve into there because basically all knowledge, um, ever known, uh, is stored somewhere in apocrypha. So you can imagine mages would love to raid that place for as many little nuggets as they can possibly bring out of there. Um, but it's kind of a fool's errand because it's like searching for, you know, very specific needles in a very, very, very large haystack. Uh, So they've kind of all kind of come together, and there's a a, a long slow burn plot line I've had going on where they've been trying to, like, map out specific places in Apocrypha that they can go to. Um, They recently built a thing they call the Index, which is essentially a compass that shows you where the knowledge you're looking for is located in Apocrypha. You just have to get there, and you have to survive the journey, you know. And they've actually made their first, their, their first delve in and uh, tried to uh, uh, try to pull something out of there, and we're successful. So, wasn't the um, Index
0: an item in the Skyrim game, or am I thinking of Codex?
1: Uh, you're, maybe the Codex, but um, Index is just something I kind of came up with.
0: Okay, that's cool. Yeah. Um. So it sounds like you're including a lot of. Like, the, the gods and artifacts in the in your game, just like they are in the video games. Um, are you including the Elder Scrolls in your games, too?
1: That's going to be a late-game concern for me. Um, I'm planning my game to be in three acts. The first act was the Poppy King. Uh, kind of got them out into Tamriel to kind of explore a little bit, you know, um, fight a a threat that was outside of their own home turf. Uh, Act 2, which is where we're at now, kind of brings the story back to Anvil, um, and that's the whole Oblivion Gate uh, to Apocrypha story. There's a lot of other little stuff going on, but I kind of wanted to bring it home so that they could feel uh, safe, I suppose, um, in Mm -hmm. their own domain. And the whole idea of Act 2 is bringing the danger to their home. And then Act 3 uh i don't want to i don't know if i want to get into it too much cuz there's uh there there people who are in my game might listen to this um yeah is uh is going to um send them back out into the world with a greater threat and the elder scrolls may or may not be one of the things that that greater threat is trying to acquire right uh so they they will they will definitely i mean you can't run an elder scrolls game and not not have an elder scroll appear you know yeah. at least once
0: I was curious about that cuz I know it shows up in Oblivion and Skyrim. I did... was there one in
1: Morrowind? I don't know actually. Uh I'm look, I'm sure Vivek has one stashed away somewhere.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um like I'm I... sure they're present somewhere like within that game's established universe, but just to whether they actually show up as a different thing.
1: Yeah, I I unfortunately don't know that game well enough to um Okay uh to, to say really.
0: Going back to an earlier point, I had a mm-hmm. question about the the ending of Daggerfall has a couple different endings, and you mentioned one of the canon endings. The way the other games have handled it that were set after the events of Daggerfall is that it treats all of the canon endings as if they happened in an event called the the Dragon Break, where there's some sort of like time nonsense stuff that allows all of the Possible endings to occur. Right, right um, Did you go with that as your The the version that's true for your campaign or are you doing like the just a single canon ending to make it simpler?
1: I I did just a single canon ending to keep things simple. Um I the way the way I kind of conceptualize it is that your average person does not understand a dragon break because they cannot understand a dragon break yep um and so uh I kind of leaned and, and maybe this is a bad interpretation of the lore, but hey, it's my game um but I kind of leaned into the idea that uh, a dragon break essentially fractures the timeline and all of those timelines are valid, but our characters can only exist in one of them. And so we're telling the story of the the fracture, the part of the dragon break where the miracle of peace was the Canon thing that happened and we're exploring that offshoot.
0: Okay, yeah, but that sounds reasonable to me.
1: It's just, it's so much easier than, oh yeah, all these simultaneous things happened five years ago, and, uh, you know, that's just news, so anyways.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I think at least two or three of them were, like, contradict other ones, so. They
1: all contradict one another, because uh, one of, every single one of them basically is who gets the numidium at the end. Right. Or, is it the Numidium or the Numidium or the heart? The heart that runs the Numidium, I forget exactly what it is, but um, there's some magical thing that is essentially the key to the Numidium, which is this giant battle mech, essentially. Um, and it's it's really who ends up with it. There's like one of seven different parties it can end up with.
0: Okay, well, moving on from that. Yep. Um, lore, am I right? <laughs> yeah, I did have another lore question for um, how you were handling different varieties of Khajiit in the game.
1: Uh, so, yeah, um, the Khajiit uh, have different a lot of different forms, depending on what phase of the moons that they are born under. And uh, uh, I would say primarily, um, you know, the Khajiit you're going to run into are the, uh, I believe they're called the Suthay, are they the main type of Khajiit. Like, you your humanoid, human-sized, you know, uh, anthropomorphic uh, cats. Um, but I actually have had a, uh, an Elfique, which is like the, the actual proper, like, house cat style one, uh, show up earlier in the game, um, as, uh, one of the spies that were actually attached to the, uh, the, the spy bandits. Um, but the kind of way that I, I've been rolling with them is that they don't, uh, the ones that are not the, um, the humanoid ones don't generally leave, uh, elsewhere because they're not largely understood um, outside of their own society, and so they just kind of, you know, make it a... It's not, it's not a hard rule or anything like that, but it's more like, yeah, why go where you're not
0: welcome? I mean, it certainly seems like a hard rule if the game's presentation of them is any indication.
1: It, it is, but again, I mean, the, the the whole point of my bringing it to the tabletop was to explore themes that the games don't. Right. Um. So right. I did have an option there, but... Eh, it's just... Th- there's certain aspects of the lore that I just haven't gotten into because, honestly, I could drown in the lore for this game. Yes. And there are certain things you just have to simplify and hand wave to keep the story moving, keep the story succinct and understandable for the players.
0: Okay, so you basically decided that those are in, those The quadrupeds aren't elsewhere, and... Just gonna go with the the standard size, cause you, and not worry too much about it. Okay. Yeah,
1: unless unless I'm really feeling like creative, like oh one shows up, but yeah, they're not all over the place.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah that that seems reasonable to me. Mm-hmm. I know that they can get pretty big and pretty small, but.
1: Oh yeah, some of them are like mammoth sized.
0: Yeah, and I guess if you really wanted to handle it, you could because it's not a PC. You can just say, oh, this one is has you know, giant stats, and we're just going to use a stone giant to represent it or something.
1: Oh, yeah, sure, sure, absolutely.
0: Okay, well, speaking of stats, uh, in your survey you mentioned you're using uh, Savage Worlds, or a different, uh, similar setting, uh, system for your game?
1: Yeah, um, uh, we're using uh, actually just Core, Core Savage Worlds, and okay. uh, the Fantasy Companion actually just came out for it. Um, I had an advanced copy of it because I was in the Kickstarter for it. Nice. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there's, there's also sa- there's Savage Pathfinder, uh, which came out a while ago. I think it was last year. Um, mm-hmm. Which is a, a Savage Worlds con- conversion of uh, the Pathfinder setting. Um, but I kind of didn't want to use that because it, it felt like D&D with the serial numbers filed off, and I was trying to get away from D&D at the time. Right,
0: so, yeah, okay.
1: Uh, yeah, just core, core Savage Worlds with the Fantasy Companion.
0: Okay, uh, so how, how does that work for the different races? Because from what I remembered of Dungeon World, at least, uh, you pick your class and then you pick your your race has like an attachment to your class, or like.
1: Uh, so the the great thing about um, about Savage Worlds is that uh, basically every it's 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 a generic system at its core, and so everything is modular with a set of points um, to be spent on it. Uh, and so there's a whole section at the beginning of the of the of the, the core book that's basically like here's a bunch of core races uh, or templates for you for different species and whatnot. Uh, but also here's the chart for building your own, and here's how you balance them. So I just kind of went through what I knew of the, uh, the the nine sentient races of Tamriel, and built my own. It was easy. It was quick. I did it in an afternoon.
0: Cool. Yeah, that sounds like it'd be. Decent for doing a, a mix of the races as well, because I think all of the men and Mer can interbreed.
1: Uh, they they can, but I I don't think you really see it. Um, and I think anytime they do, uh, you come out essentially as the species of your mother
0: down the maternal. Oh, way. that's right. I forgot about that part. Uh, the
1: only the only um long term sort of like hybrid race you see is the Bretons that just have a little bit of uh. uh uh, elven blood in them, mm-hmm. um, but they they express mostly human. That's right.
0: Okay, yeah, I'd forgotten that it was that they had the the maternal lineage thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, can you get more into what Savage Worlds is as a system for those uh, who haven't played or heard about it before? Uh, yeah, uh,
1: so Savage Worlds is a uh, it's a me, a generic game system um, put out by Pinnacle Entertainment Group. And uh, it's been a while for, around for a while. Uh, they're currently on uh, what they call their Adventure Edition. They don't go by numbered editions. They have a, a, a name for them. Um, so you'll see it abbreviated sometimes as Suede, uh, Savage Worlds Adventure Edition. Um, okay. And uh, the, the, the thing that really attracted me to it is that it's uh, a very simple dice system um, so you've got, uh, five traits, which are your, uh, your main attributes and then all of your skills as well. Um, every single one of those has a die attached to it. So, uh, you know, you don't have like a, f- you know, a 15 in strength, you would have a D8 in strength and it goes from D4, D6, D8, D10, D12 is the highest. So it's essentially on a one to five scale. Um and simple enough that's the die you roll whenever you want to test that stat um right the 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 attributes do not act as modifiers to your skills like you see in a lot of other systems like white wolf or dungeons and dragons um they act as kind of like uh skill thresholds instead so you can have like a say you've got a uh you know, a D6 in your um, agility, okay? Which is kind of like your dexterity attribute. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're not, in a lot of other systems, it's going to be, you're going to add your attribute plus your skill to get what you're you're rolling for your dice. It doesn't function like that in Savage Worlds. It just says that basically if you're going to raise a skill that is tied to agility, say like fighting, um, you can go up to D6, which is what your agility is, uh, for 1 point one advancement point but then anything surpassing your agility it takes 2 it takes twice the amount um and so you could you, it just takes more effort to surpass your uh your natural limits but you absolutely can and this offers some really great freedom for building your characters uh because you don't have dump stats as much as you do in other in other game systems you know um, you don't have the the fighter saying, well, I can't be charismatic because my charisma is a dump stat, you know, and I'll never have the bonuses to be able to persuade anybody. Instead, you have like, well, yeah, I can absolutely, as the big dumb fighter, be persuasive. I just need to try extra hard to level up my persuasion. But I can absolutely do it. Okay. Um, uh, other than that, though, um, it has a very pulpy feel. Um, because it not only offers um, a meta currency in the form of bennies, which allow you to spend to do things like rerolls, um, to shrug off the effects of, uh, of of certain damage and such like that, uh, puts you kind of in the in the the seat of being like the big hero, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but also, every time you roll the die, you also throw an extra d six along with it, called the wild die, and so it essentially gives you two tries. To beat the 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 target number, which is always four. So say I'm rolling like my uh my fighting, which is like a d eight, right? I would roll my d eight, but I would also roll a d6. And if either of those dice, they're separate, they don't add, if either of those dice comes up four or higher, I succeed. And that's okay. it. That's all of Savage Worlds, you just learned it.
0: Okay. Yeah, that seems like a pretty simple way of handling stuff. Yeah, um. it's it's it's
1: very quick to play, very quick to learn, um and the like the build variety, it's classless and sort of quasi levelless. It's got a very flat power curve to it. So you don't end up with like your Dungeons and Dragons style of like one week I'm a I'm a pitiful farmer that can't hurt a rat and then next week we're going to go punch Tiamat.
0: Yeah, yeah, depending on how how many long rests you get in there?
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that was a big problem I was having with fifth edition. But when we moved to Savage Worlds, it flattened the power curve a lot more. And like people say in Savage Worlds, like you start off as like a person who can fire a gun, and at the end of the campaign, you're a person who's exceptionally good at firing a gun. You know that okay. that's your power curve. Like, oh, I can do some fun tricks with it, but like, I'm never gonna go kill God. You know?
0: Yeah. I was actually talking with this about the last episode I recorded um, about E6 for 3.5. Uh, did you play that, that variation? Did I, I'm
1: sorry, e, uh, E6, e you said? Yeah. Uh, I don't I don't know that I'm familiar with that now.
0: Uh, it was a variant rule set for 3.5, which okay. I guess it still is a variant rule set for 3.5 if you're sure. running that. Where you stop leveling up at level 6. Um, so the the power curve is flatter because it just doesn't go as high and then after that point whenever you would level up you instead just pick a new feat um and oh, I then love the that. the I variant also introduces a bunch of extra feats um, that are you know kind of like the epic feats from from the epic level handbook but not quite because it's more like you get an you get a, you take a feat, and now you can cast like one fourth level spell that's out of your reach normally.
1: Oh yeah, but sure, it sure.
0: Takes you like a week to rest enough to cast it again because of how much draining it is on your body. No, I love so, that. I absolutely yeah. love that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it was a good way to keep that low level power, but not have to like relearn a whole new system or get away from that that crunchy feel of of uh, third edition.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Savage Worlds kind of does that, too, where um, I, I say it's quasi level because you get what's called advances. And your advance basically just allows you to, like, you know, add some skill points, you know, b- bump a couple skills up a die rating, um, like, one attribute, or you pick an edge, which are kind of analogous to feats. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but, like, every four advances, there's there's ranks. And so you start off as novice, then you go uh, seasoned, then uh, veteran, then heroic, then legendary. And uh, certain edges and such like that will have rank requirements to them. So you may not be able to purchase certain powers or certain uh, edges until you're heroic or until you're veteran or whatnot. So it kind of gotcha. you know scales the power curve so you can't just come in with the best stuff. Gotcha. Mm-hmm.
0: Um... Is magic just another skill in that? Like you, you know, you take a, you have a point in fire magic or something like that. Uh,
1: it's it's technically an edge. It's called arcane background. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the core book, there's just arcane background magic. Uh, there was a couple, a couple different arcane backgrounds, but the one most applicable is like uh, psionics and, um, uh, mad science and such like that that you can do out of okay. the main book. But uh, yeah. Uh, the Fantasy Companion offered a handful other arcane backgrounds, but basically, there is, since it is a generic game, um, it needs to be able to service a wide variety of stories. Uh, and so you do your arcane background, which gives you access to powers. And then powers kind of become your uh, sort of proto spells. Um, but they're all very generic. So, like, you don't have Fireball, you have Burst. And then you have to just kind of describe what they call trappings, which you would say this has the trapping of fire. So okay. it it's it's the generic burst spell, which does an AoE template of damage. But then yours, you've specified, does fire. So whatever story effects fire has, this will have because it is fire.
0: Okay, I see.
1: Uh, and then, you know, depending on what arcane background you've got, there's, there's different edges that will say, like, okay, you get more spells or you get more power points or um your power points recover quicker or whatnot. It's a um it's a spell point system basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than that. So when you cast and you can modify them in certain ways, it gives you a little flexibility. So, you know, make the area effect bigger, make the duration longer, uh cast it quicker, sort of things like that. Um may cost more power points and you can cast until you're expended.
0: Okay. That sounds very much like Elder Scrolls with the a point system for that. That's good.
1: See, that's actually one of the things I really like about Savage Worlds is that uh, the combat is very um, uh, very open format, sort of. Uh, I don't know how to describe it. But, like, even non-combat characters can do stuff in combat. Uh, because you've got... Um, there's a move you can do called A Test. Where basically it's like the... Uh, uh, I'm gonna, you know, make a Yo Mama joke and, you know, make the guy you know distracted by making him angry at me or something like that you know um and that doesn't do any damage or anything like that you know it's not like it's not like cutting words you know in in D fifth edition but mm. uh it gives him a status effect called distracted which makes him minus two to any of his rolls and when your target number is always four you know that's a pretty big hit yeah um or you can you can even do stuff like you know uh, well I, I, I probably can't pierce his armor with my you know with my bow and arrow. but What I can do is whiz an arrow and bang it off of his uh, uh off his helmet. So I'm going to test him with my shooting skill, and that will make him distracted, which makes him my uh, uh or makes everybody else plus two to hit him. You know, I see. and so a lot of it is like if you've got a really hard target, say like a giant dragon or a heavily armored foe or something like that, you can start stacking debuffs on them by distracting them, making them vulnerable, um, ganging up on them and whatnot. And so even if you're not the one dealing the damage, you can make it so that your damage dealer can deal the damage. And therefore you're contributing at all times, you know?
0: Yeah. It's kinda of like the eight another thing in fifth edition.
1: Yeah, but it's so much more expansive. Yes, yes, that definitely does sound like it's more. Yeah, like my, my boyfriend's character doesn't even have a fighting skill. He's got a rapier, he didn't know how to use it though. <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious. He's playing he's playing this dumbass noble who's just arrogant as all hell. Um but uh he's also like a daedra hunter by night. Um his, is his, he a
0: magic user
1: yeah yeah he's a he's a he's a mage um he so his character basically it was jeff Bezos, right we invented this trade company called the wayrest Trade tradewinds um oh. that were like a based out of wayrest in uh, in in high rock um and he was like the the heir apparent to this major trade company that was basically like amazon like they they were the fedex, you know, everybody used mm-hmm. them to ship stuff. And uh, so just heir to this vast fortune. And one day he discovers this Daedric cult that is like deeply infiltrated many strata of society, including his own trade company. And he kind of goes off the deep end of like, I can't trust everyone, uh, you know, anyone. The shadows have ears. I have to eradicate this Daedric threat. Oh, God, the Daedra are everywhere. And he just goes missing one day he like doesn't even fake his own death he just leaves and so his brother is just left holding the reins of this major trade company not knowing what the hell to do he doesn't come back for 5 years he's presumed dead so they just write him off they have a funeral for him and everything like that like the company's got to keep moving you know so they pass you know leadership of the of the company over to the, to, to his brother officially and he's just presumed dead um, meanwhile, he's pulling this, like, Fox molder the truth is out there stuff. <laughs> um, he hooks up with the Mage's Guild halfway across Cyrodiil, you know, and starts learning magic so that he can basically unravel Daedric's secrets and hunt them down and eradicate them. Um, and so he still flexes his noble chops and stuff that he can still rub elbows with. Uh, um with the higher ups, you know, with with the best of them, he's definitely the like the talker. He was originally a bard um right. in the group, but uh now in Savage Worlds, I mean, he's still got basically the same skill set, but like all of his spells are just control spells. He doesn't even have a damaging spell. Um it's all just like debuffs and 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 control spells and stuff and buffs. Buffs and debuffs.
0: Um cool? Yeah yeah I'm glad that the system can support that kind of play style.
1: It's great. It's great. I'm never looking back, man.
0: <laughs> Have you tried blades because blades also has like an eight and other thing that's that's similar to that where you just say that you're helping someone and they get they get an extra die to roll
1: so it's funny we um on 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 my podcast we do a uh a monthly system spotlight. It's the second Wednesday of every month is a system spotlight and so we pick a new. Uh, game system we've never looked at before and we just go over it like with a fine-tooth comb um and uh blades in the dark is actually one of the ones we're going to be doing very uh i think even next month is the one we're going to be looking at so uh i i haven't actually looked at it yet um however every time i look in like every other thread in r slash rpg on reddit is like have you played blades in the dark so yeah, yeah. It, it, to to say it comes highly recommended is probably the understatement of the year.
0: Yeah. I mean you've got Apocalypse World, Savage Worlds, Blades in the Dark, Pathfinder, and that, yeah. that's that's all the big ones that are still like quasi fantasy.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So I feel like White Wolf is definitely a big player, but it's it's kind of Baked into the setting for how it works, and you can't really use it for anything else.
1: I feel like White Wolf has really like faded into obscurity. Like, it was super huge in like the 90s and early 2000s, and then just I don't know what happened to it. Like, they they did the the revised edition, I think, and then uh, they've got this like Chronicles of Darkness now. So, I mean, I guess it's still around, but I don't know many people who play it or even
0: think about it. I don't know anybody who's started playing it that wasn't already playing it back then. That's a good point.
1: Yeah, it might be all nostalgia babies, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, And I guess there's also GURPS, but that's sort of... Uh, Eh. Yeah.
1: I mean, like, there's a number of generic systems out there. There's GURPS, there's Hero, there's Savage Worlds. Um, I've played just a little bit of GURPS, but I feel like everything GURPS does, Savage Worlds, can do and can do easier.
0: Yes, that that was my feeling from playing the system, was that it's just, there's so much work that goes into building a character, and then I realized, oh my god, this is just building a character. What is it like to DM this freaking system? Yeah,
1: yeah. Like, my boyfriend's a huge GURPS nerd um and so every time generic system comes, oh you know you can do that in groups yes i know i can do it in groups but but god at what cost you know
0: <laughs> i could do it in groups i don't think i would have fun doing it in
1: curbs. yeah i'm sure i'm sure i could walk to washington state from michigan too but you know i ain't gonna it's gonna be easier for the car and even easier for the plane yeah i need you to understand that savage worlds is the plane in this <laughs> in this in this <laughs> metaphor
0: yes definitely
1: It'll get me there, but it'll take me weeks.
0: Uh, in your survey, you also mentioned the uh, the count of Skingrad, and I remember that uh, that little quest line from Oblivion. Uh, did you want to talk more about that?
1: Yeah. Uh, so I kind of wanted to do little personal quests. Um, for I, I I like to have personal quests for uh, for my PCs, and uh, one of yeah, my PCs. When we started in fifth edition, was a life cleric um, of the the Aedra Stendar, who's the Aedra of Mercy, and uh, but his background was an old grizzled soldier, and uh, he kind of leaned into his soldier background quite a bit, and he tended to get very uh, very rough with people, and was you know kind of a frontline fighter, and uh, you know for for someone who's essentially a priest of mercy. That, uh, that left me with some questions about his character, so I decided to give him, uh, everybody's most hated Daedric artifact, and that was Meridia's beacon. A new hand touches the beacon. Um, just dropped it casually into some loot. Um, you know, of course, I I had the ability as a storyteller to say, oh yeah, you find this thing. Um, so of course he stumbled upon it, and, uh meridia basically told him come to my shrine out by the town of Skingrad, and i'll give you further instructions so he does eventually he sat on it for a while um and at this point he had gone as far as like torturing a couple bandits for information and i'm not i'm not a big believer in like you know revoking people's cleric powers because they went against their god i think that 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 takes away the fun part of their character. I'm just much more interested in putting them into moral dilemmas. So I decided Mm. to turn this entire quest into one giant moral dilemma for him. Um, So Meridia asks him to come to his shrine. He's very cautious because he understands the Daedra are dangerous. But he's intrigued enough that Meridia chose him. And what he knows of Meridia is that she really hates the undead. And of course, you know, as a priest of Stendar, he also really hates the undead. So... He starts thinking, okay, well, we'll see where this goes. She tells him that a great darkness is in the town of Skingrad, and she wants him to handle it. Go into town, seek out her followers there, and they will help him. So, long story short, he meets up with this cult of Meridia. They understand that he is the chosen one, because basically he brings the beacon with him. And they hand him Dawnbreaker in exchange. Meanwhile, there are missing persons posters all over Skingrad and like the town guard is going to impose a curfew and all that um, because so many people have gone missing and people are starting to talk that maybe there's like a vampire or something stalking around. Now, if you've played Oblivion, and I know you have, you know that the count of of Skingrad is a vampire in canon. So I lifted that whole quest whole cloth um, where his wife and himself had been turned into vampires. She's in a coma because she refused to feed and he is part of the Mage's Guild and he and the Mage's Guild are working together to try to find a cure for vampirism. Now the one twist I threw on there is that I added a second vampire. Uh, This one was a um Woman by the name of uh, Yorda Foe Crusher, and she was a uh, essentially a leg breaker and a Shylock for the uh, for the Thieves Guild. Right. Um, known for her brutality, she was always on thin ice with them because you know the Thieves Guild tries not to hurt people. That's bad for business, and uh, Yorda frequently left bruises and broken bones in her wake. Uh, one night she was going to collect on a debt. Things went sideways. Uh, she ended up killing the guy that she was trying to collect the debt from. The wife and kid witnessed it, and so she decided she couldn't have any witnesses and did them too. Uh, she was locked up for the triple homicide, especially the heinous crime of killing the child, and put in the dungeon in the castle. Countess Skingrad Yanis Hasseldor, uh, is struggling with his vampirism. He's feeding off of animal blood most days. But sometimes that just isn't satiating his thirst anymore. So he goes down to the dungeon where condemned prisoners are. They're going to die anyways, and they're there because they're awful people, so he picks one of them off, right? This night, he decides he's going to pick off Yorda, who is strong enough and violent enough to fight him off, but not after being bitten. She contracts vampirism herself, but she escapes from the dungeon. And goes off into the wilderness and turns full vampire. Uh, She's very enraged by this. Decides she's coming back to Skingrad not to kill Hasseldor, but to destroy him. She wants it done publicly. She wants to be the most flagrant vampire possible in Skingrad. So that every vampire hunter for miles around comes to Skingrad to solve that problem. And she's going to leave a trail of blood leading right up to the castle gates. And so what I do is I present this cleric of, 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 of mercy with a magical undead slaying sword and two vampires to choose from. And I start uh, needling him with the question of, which are you, the bringer of mercy or the soldier? Is your mercy death or is your mercy life? Uh, and so I brought back the um, the bandit from the Highlands that he was torturing
0: uh-huh.
1: uh, as an NPC who was just having a beer with another NPC that he had disagreements with about uh, his ethics of killing. Um, and they were just like, oh, hey, what's up, killer? Let's, let us buy you a beer. And he's just bristled absolutely bristled that these two people would be accusing him of being a killer and he's like i'm not that person and the bandit was just like you broke my fingers dude (laughs) you know i don't know what sort of mercy you think you're delving out but it ain't this um and then yeah they, they there's just this whole plot that unfolded that constantly put him in situations to choose between do you execute or do you listen do you negotiate you know and when it came down to it, he ended up killing Yorda and sparing Count Hasseldor. Uh, but man, right up to the very end, it was pretty touch and go. He was going to execute both of them and be done. But
0: I mean, I can understand that. Like Hasseldor does not uh, never really comes off as good, and with my experience of him,
1: um, I mean, maybe not in the in in the the video game. Um, I played him pretty straightforward though. Uh, someone with genuinely good intentions. Uh, his main intention was to uh, find a cure for vampirism and do it, you know, as as and then distribute that cure to all of Tamriel. Um, but he also understood he was kind of on a ticking clock and things had kind of gotten out of hand. Uh, and he was trying to deal with that the best he could, but Yorda was just making a mess of things. And then, of course, you know, the PCs show up with Dawnbreaker in hand and things get really out of hand then, you know. But, uh... Yeah, even the even the, the the leader of the thieves guild, who kind of got dragged into the the, the plot, um, was telling the PCs like, "Yeah, I mean, Hasseldor is my enemy because he essentially represents the state and the law, but like, he's a good guy. He rules Skingrad very nicely. Like, you know, I don't have any problems with how he governs." He uh, generally has the best interest of his subjects in mind and such like that. So I really tried to play up that, like, Hasseldor is a good guy. Are you really going to stick a sword in him just because he's a vampire? Is that a sin worthy of death? And like I said, right up to the very end, he almost he almost killed him.
0: You said the head of the Thieves Guild? Is that the Gray Fox?
1: Uh, no, I've name-dropped him, but uh, nobody knows who he is. I mean, and that and that's canon. Uh Nobody actually yeah, does know who he is. I suppose. Um, in in the video games, he's actually the Count of Anvil. Uh, uh, a guy by the name of Umbra Knox. But I, I decided, first off, I didn't want that to be true because the game is set in Anvil. And I didn't want my Count to be such a major plot line, I suppose.
0: Well, I don't think the Count actually has the cowl at the point that you have it set.
1: Okay, well, yeah, I mean, maybe he was, but one way or another, the guy's name is Umbra Knox, and I decided that I was not naming my Count of Anvil Count Shadow Dark. Oh, okay. Or Shadow Knight, yeah. I mean, like, that was just, that was a cheesy name, and I did not want it, so.
0: Yeah, Raven uh, Shadow Knight. <laughs>
1: yes, Raven Shadow, Corvus Umbra yes, Raven Shadow Knight. Come on. <laughs> That's right on a hot topic, buddy.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a very uh, edgy name.
1: Mm-hmm. So yeah, I I ended up changing that. The gray fox does exist. I have name dropped him. Um, uh, there was wanted posters for him all around, but he hasn't shown up as an actual plot element. Okay. Yeah. Uh, no. The 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 leader was just kind of a generic. Um, uh, he's just an imperial guy named Domitius. Um, pretty chill customer. Uh, I gave him uh, a face named Charlotte. Um, and I gave him a bruiser named Aventus. And that was basically all I needed for the Thieves Guild. Those were enough faces to make them feel like they were populated.
0: Yeah. No, that's all you need. That's, uh, that's basically the philosophy of the Elder Scrolls games. We don't mm-hmm. need to have it be fully populated, just enough for it to feel yeah. like it is. Give them, give them enough
1: people to talk to, but not enough that they feel overwhelming.
0: Yes, exactly. It's all role playing games, so same mm-hmm. principle there. Yeah, well, uh, I feel like normally I'd have more questions about the world, but I feel like I already understand it and I feel like it's such a big cultural impact after Skyrim, which, you know, brought brought you into the universe. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, that I feel like I don't have as many questions there. And we've gone over your campaign a bit, at least for what you're you're willing to talk about and not get into act three like you said. Oh yeah, sure, um, sure. Was there anything else that you wanted to bring up?
1: I think, uh, but the only thing that I can think of to to, to really kind of bring up is um, the, I suppose the effort of kind of converting stuff from the Elder Scrolls, from like the video games into a video game format, Um, or sorry, into a tabletop role-playing game format Right. uh, from the video games, Um, because this is also kind of one of the reasons why I decided to go with my own homebrew rather than some of the other existing homebrews that are that are, that are actually out there. The, uh, there is an unofficial Elder Scrolls hack for Savage Worlds. Um, and I straight up decided not to use it. Uh, and it's the same problem I see with a lot of times where uh, people will try to convert video game mechanics over to role-playing games. And that is they focus way too much on the video game mechanic and not enough about what it represents in the story. Um, so, for instance, the, the unofficial hack for Savage Worlds had five, I think, five different skills for magic, depending on what school of magicka you were using. So, Like destruction, transmutation, alteration, conjuration, all that jazz. Right. Um, and they all leveled separately, and depending on what power you were using, depended on what skill you were rolling... You know because, quote unquote, that's the way it is in the video games where all these were separate skill lines. And like, wow, that's tedious, you know. Um, and and I think a lot of people when they're when they're converting things over like this and making their own homebrews, don't realize is that um video game mechanics make good video game mechanics because you have a computer doing all that crunch for you. Um. And also, you need to curate that experience into something that is playable and consumable, uh, from a video game standpoint, right?
0: I'm not even sure those mechanics that they had were that good <laughs> for that specific example either. I mean, maybe not. Um, you 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 may be onto something there, but <laughs> so the the like the abjuration school is like incredibly hard to level because the, they just don't get experience from casting the spells.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think usually you end up cheesing it, you know, uh, stand here and cast this one specific spell on this one specific NPC for 15, 20, 30 minutes, and you'll hit 100, you know?
0: Yeah, that's what I did to level up adjuration, is I just, I cast the mage armor on myself while i was walking between different quest locations because that was the only way to get it leveled up
1: yeah yeah it's just it's just stupid and grindy you know it's yeah there's, so there's that's no purpose to do it right
0: that's not a good mechanic you shouldn't port that over <laughs> exactly
1: exactly and you know other things are just there to you know scratch various itches of of you know video gamers like you have a crafting system you know they ported it over well here's how you craft stuff here's how you blacksmith stuff and i'm like i'm not interested in any of that like you don't you don't need that. It's a, the role playing game itself is engaging because you've got players at your table who want to tell a story. They're not interested in, okay, roll the dice to see if I can craft 100 iron daggers, you know? Right. That's that's not what they're there for. That's not what they're what they're spending the time for. And so other video game mechanics like the, you know, different five different schools of Magicka, like, you don't need any of that. Like Spells... Yeah,
0: you got to port the acrobatics and the athletic skills. People know how fast they can run and how high they can jump. Exactly, exactly.
1: <laughs> so, you know, we're going for a very narrative feel in our game, and uh, so a lot of a lot of my effort in porting things over was uh, looking at how it functioned uh, in the story, and going for that feel rather than how does it function mechanically in a video game, and going for that.
0: Well, I mean, I guess that goes into one of my next questions: is usually, what's? Do you have any DMing advice that you want to give people? And <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, I, I have a whole right whole podcast about it
1: weekly. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, <I> suppose <laughs> that as well. That's right. Um, but as far as yeah, I mean, I, I would say, uh, you know, always serve the narrative first. Um, and I think that goes for that's that's very system agnostic uh, advice. You know, uh, let. Let the rules serve the story and not the other way around. Um, And my other biggest advice would be be a fan of your players. Uh, You see this printed in, I think, most uh, Powered by the Apocalypse games. It's one of their core core pillars, is be a fan of your players. Um, If a player uh, investigates a lead or talks to an NPC or... um, and it goes in a direction you don't expect, that's that player telling you that that's something they're interested in being a bigger part of the story. Um, and don't throw that away, you know? If they make you make up an NPC on the fly, jot that down and make it part of the story for them. Make their actions feel important, feel impactful, and center them as the heroes of the tale, and basically everything else you do is window dressing. They will have a great time one way or another.
0: Yeah, that's good advice. I like that. Thank you. I was thinking of introducing a new question at the end of the podcast of if there was any uh any time you had a specific like problem while DMing that you like thought of a solution to solve it.
1: Yeah, I So one of my one of my bigger problems is that I'm an over planner. Um, if I don't have something jotted down and pre-planned uh, for you know a week ahead of time, um, I t- it it tends to throw me off. and I find being thrown off and forced to improvise on my feet uh, very frustrating, which is why I overplan to prevent that from happening. Cover every contingency. Um, right. And very recently, I had uh, especially my 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 boyfriend's uh, uh, character. Um, pulled on a thread that I offered him, but I didn't foresee him pulling as hard as he did. He asked me to introduce an NPC. I did, and then he performed. He he proceeded to uh, to question that NPC for the next twenty minutes <laughs> ah. <laughs> about various details of his you know of of the goings on in the city. And uh, I, I was I was frustrated, and we were reaching the end of our game session, and so I just kind of told him well, yeah, he doesn't he doesn't know anything. Um, and then I kind of went back between game sessions and I took my own advice. I was like, wait, no, he wanted to interrogate that NPC because that's something he's interested in. I have to give him something better and more narratively relevant than he doesn't know anything. Let's move on. You know, I didn't want to dismiss him like that. So I I think the the thing that I did to solve that actually was I was like, I I started next game session by simply saying we're retconning the last 15 minutes of game. I'm just straight up erasing it. The answer isn't he doesn't know anything. The answer is here's all the stuff he knows, and that is the plot that leads us into the plot for today's game. Um. Okay. So I, you know, I think um, kind of my advice there is like don't don't be afraid to just be like, nope, I did that wrong. Let's let's do it over. You know, don't overuse that. And I would say don't do it for like whole game sessions. But like, you know, that answer wasn't final for me. Um. And so, you know, you just, you just solve it by just recognizing it, taking steps to fix it and making it better the next time around.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's definitely some good advice. I I've definitely done that in the past as well. And it's, it's always felt like the right decision when you, you know, you have to go back and change something mm-hmm. and it makes everyone a lot happier when you do. Okay. Well, uh, I think that's everything then. Uh, thank you for coming on the, the podcast, Sarah. And yeah, everyone else should, uh, check out storyteller conclave
1: yeah thank you so much for having me and uh, it was a lot of fun talking